Welcome to episode 48 of the Accessibility Craft Podcast, where we explore the art of creating accessible websites while trying out interesting craft beverages. This podcast is brought to you by the team at Equalize Digital, a WordPress accessibility company and the proud creators of the Accessibility Checker plugin. In this episode, we discuss the recent $2 million court settlement between Brian Bashan, a leader in the blindness community and blind camping enthusiast, and Conjuent State and Local Solutions, the developer who built California's Parks and Recreation Department website, which, according to court documents, failed to meet even the most basic accessibility standards. For show notes and a full transcript, go to accessibilitycraft.com slash 048. And now, on to the show. Hey, everybody. It's Amber, and I'm here today with Chris. Hey, everybody. And Steve. Hello, everyone. And we are going to be talking about a $2 million settlement in a California case against a web developer who promised to deliver an accessible website and did not. And they got sued and settled for $2 million. But before we talk about that case and the implications for all of our businesses, Let's have a drink. Yeah, I'm I'm um, cautiously optimistic about this one. We'll put it that way. So this is a, a non-alcoholic sparkling rosé. It will be the first non-alcoholic wine I will have ever personally tasted. Um, so it'll be a new adventure for me at least. And this is uh, Surely, and it's a sparkling rosé. It's going to be made with California grape juice. Hold it up, Chris. We are, this is also our first episode where if you want to, you can watch it on YouTube. So I feel like, Chris, you should be holding the bottle, being like Vanna White while you talk. You're making, you're making this so much more complicated than it already was. Uh, (laughs) Now I have to think about how I, I mean, obviously I thought a little bit about how I look today. I've got my, um, I've got my WordPress accessibility day shirt and my post status hat, but um, we're, uh, yeah, we're we're trying this out. I got to crack this open here or pop it open. Um, and Steve had an experience with this that he can tell you about <laughs> while I work on this. And while well, we watch Chris have the same experience, yeah. Yeah. So what happened when you opened yours, Steve? Oh man, it made a mess all over my desk and <laughs> the floor and stuff. I expected a little bit, but boy, it really gushed out. So and Chris has a towel. Yeah. This is oh. the art of opening a champagne or a sparkling wine. Maybe you have to put yeah, a, a you just towel twist on it very slowly, and it should just oh, be a hiss, okay. not an explosion. There it is. Oh man, I don't know if we got that on the microphone. I got a little. But... I heard it a little bit, but that's yeah. cheating. <laughs> so, did you like put your thumbs around the neck of it, or your hands around the neck, and your thumbs on the cork, and just go and yeah, like yeah, pop yeah, it right just, out? Yep. I was that's like, the, I was that's like, the fun way to do it. I was like, I just pushed on it and it was just like, and just <laughs> it shot out like a, like a, like this high. It was crazy. <laughs> oh man, look at him pour that. So it's, it looks foamy. Does it look too foamy, Chris? Or? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm priming the glass, which is the classic uh, sparkling wine pouring technique. What you does do that a little mean? Pour, you do a little pour first to settle the bubbles. And then you do you come back to it and you do a longer pour. And that just makes it foam up a little bit less in the glass. Okay. Interesting. Let's, well, he's let, pouring too because he has mine, because we yeah. share an office. So I'm gonna go get mine and I will be right yeah. back. All right, we're gonna break for commercial. So let's talk about glasses. Let's talk about our oh, yeah. 
<laughs> oh yeah. So we have the champagne flutes. You don't have a champagne flute? I what have are you a, drinking out of? I have a glass cup. Yeah. <laughs> like for water, a water glass. A water glass. <laughs> I mean, that's that's better than a solo cup. So we're, you know, you know, it's probably part of a level. It's probably par for the course for Steve in these in these drink tests. <laughs> uh, I, no, no wine glasses in your home. No, no, I should get some though. Well, so we have we actually have quite a few wine, like actual wine glasses, only because. Chris's dad gave us the wedding crystal that he and Chris's mom had. So we have very nice wine glasses, but we only have these two champagne flutes. And if anyone is watching on YouTube, they'll see that on the stem, there are two hearts stacked one on top of the other. And that is because these are the champagne flutes <laughs> that we had at our wedding when we did, you know, the champagne toast right before I shoved wedding cake up Chris's nose. <laughs> yep. True story. And, uh, yeah, these are the only champagne flutes we have, yeah. so this is what we use. <laughs> this is so this is so romantic. Let's... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, so let's it's, taste it's a... it and Yeah, I'm appreciating. It's kind of like a a peach color almost. Mm -hmm. Um Is rosé supposed to be more pink or is this a good color for a rosé, do you think? I mean, I'm I don't normally see rosés that look quite this tone in terms of color, but it's also a non-alcoholic rosé, so maybe you lose some of that color in the de-alcoholification process. Um, okay, did you look this up? Is that what it is? They took alcohol and made I, it non-alcoholic? I have no, okay. I have no idea. It, this it might says, be sweet. But... It says alcohol removed contains less than 0.5% ABV. So I guess they have okay. removed it. I uh, On the color and... Uh, my son saw this and he said it was the color of urine. And I said, maybe somebody slightly dehydrated, but <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, might want to go see a doctor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think it's like, a, I mean, it's okay color, but I always thought rosé, I guess we don't really drink rosé. I think of rosé as pink. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. But I, I don't know. All right, so I'm, I'm going to taste yeah, it. This has kind of an odd taste. I'm going in again. Okay, it is dry. It is not sweet, yeah. which is fine. I'm not like I wouldn't drink a really sweet wine anyway. Mm -hmm. It definitely has like a weird grapey aftertaste that I don't think you actually normally get with wine. It's um, it's very sour, like more sour than I would expect a wine to be. It's it's like almost like it's gone a little bit vinegary. Um. It's yeah. uh, and I'm not so, I'm not getting a lot of complexity or maybe just that sour those sour notes are all I'm tasting and it's interfering with anything more subtle. But I mean, not yeah, like it doesn't seem layered, right? Yeah, not not that I one have, note, not that I have a uh, you know a palate to work off of here, but um, I'm getting a little bit of like apple cider vinegar. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah, maybe. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely sour, definitely a little bit vinegary. I can see the apple cider vinegar um and why you'd say that. I'm yeah. I'm trying to detect any other flavor. I just can't really get much else out of it. Like Yeah, sour. Sour sour grapes. Yep. Yeah. So so here's what it says for their process on their website. So they use California grapes, 
they have a bunch of stuff about why California grapes are better. Mm -hmm. Um, and they said they only use wines that can maintain their flavor and charm through dealkalization. So it is fermented, right? So it's not grape juice. So mm -hmm. they have the same process of fermentation to create wine. And then it says using cutting edge spinning cone column technology. We are able to delicately remove the alcohol while maintaining the wine's natural essence and aromatics. So they're spinning it really fast. I don't know what that means. <laughs> cone column technology, spinning, spinning cone column technology. Yeah. Sounds like and a, then, a lot of marketing speak. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then <laughs> it says, and then they, they, blend or mix it so it says it's careful chemistry and artistic approach our wine team creates the final composition using natural ingredients botanicals and teas and they create a blend yeah it, it says what we're supposed to get apparently um, according to the notes in their own description is crisp light notes of strawberry pear and tropical fruits okay now, i feel like you told me that i'm gonna see if i can taste any of it I feel like I barely get the pear and that's about it personally. Um, and it's barely there. I, I'm getting like all crisp. It's all sour. Yeah, it's real sour. Okay, wait. Now that you've said pear, I totally taste pear. I I don't think I... And, and maybe even... Okay, it is a little kind of tropical maybe. I don't think I get strawberry. But it's like super underripe pear. <laughs> <laughs> so I think just like many alcohols... It kind of is growing on me a little bit as I drink more of it. Like it wasn't, we've had beverages before where I had a drink and I was like, no. <laughs> and sometimes they yeah. got worse the more you drank. <laughs> but this, like, I like tasting it more. Now that said, like if I have to think about the typical thing that we do for like a non-alcoholic sparkling is like a Martinelli's. Like at holidays, we'll, t we'll buy that for the mm -hmm. kids and sometimes we even drink it too i don't know if i would choose this over that <laughs> but yeah. I, I don't know what do you guys think yeah it definitely hits you hard the first time um mm -hmm. i don't know mm -hmm. it's not it's not super pleasant <laughs> you know what i what yeah. i was kind of thinking of is like i'm someone who uh kind of likes drinking pickle juice sometimes like the sour or the salt um and he's like for whatever our reason our children drink it too not all the time but sometimes <laughs> um but something about like all the electrolytes in it just like it it satisfies something and this kind of is making me think of the same kind of vibe i get um from drinking that it's like i don't like it's not a flavor i would go out of my way to get but I don't mind taking another sip just because of how like sour it is. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. Like to me, like this is not gross. Like we've had stuff that I, I think it's interesting. It, it felt more single note, but then once you told me what, I, I don't know if that's just the power of. <laughs> that's the power of our brains. Suggestion. Right. <laughs> right? Once yeah, you yeah, told yeah. me what was supposed to be in there, I was like, Oh, I think maybe I can taste that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I yeah, I mean, it might make an interesting mimosa. 
with the orange juice if you wanted to have a non-alcoholic mimosa in a way that like a Martinelli's are usually too sweet for that. So like that might be a good use for the Shirley thing. And maybe also people who have tasted more wine. Like I'm not really a wine drinker. I tend to drink more beer than anything. So they might taste this and be like, oh yeah, that's great. Because they like know more about how to taste wine than I do. So. Uh, speaking, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm out of practice, but as speaking of someone who has tasted hundreds and hundreds <laughs> of wines, this is not particularly good. Um, okay, never mind then. <laughs> I think I think it's probably like a like a solid C minus. Okay, but if you were avoiding alcohol, does that make it better? I have I have no perspective to offer on that because this is the only non-alcoholic wine I've ever tasted. I'd probably have to taste more to see if this is par for the course or not. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're right. Like comparing this to alcoholic is like comparing apples to oranges, right? It's not going to be the same, especially yeah. with like spinning cone technology. I wonder if that's like introducing <laughs> a bunch of air into the wine that then over aerates it. And that's why it seems so mm. sour in one note. Like, mm. I don't know. <laughs> um, so I think what we've learned is that this, so this episode is coming out in January. So that means later this year, which will be 2024 when this releases, we should have another non-alcoholic wine from a different company to see if it's just non-alcoholic wine or if there's something about this, you know, that is mm -hmm. better or worse. So, well, okay. So we've talked beverage. Let's talk about this lawsuit, which was the press release from the law firm who was representing the plaintiff uh, came out December 1st. So the settlement was announced on December 1st um, and it's huge. And so I thought that it would be worth us talking about a little bit. Chris, do you want to give like a, a little summary of what the the lawsuit was about and the settlement? Can I throw that one at you? No, I didn't read any of this. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I'll, <laughs> I'll, um, I'll give a very brief summary that will probably only be partially factually correct because I'm not used to reading legal documents. But basically, um, the person who filed the suit was um, a leader in the blind community in California um, his name's Brian Bashan, and he went and I believe he tried to make a reservation on this Parks and Recs site um, for a campsite to do some outdoor stuff and discovered that it was completely inaccessible. Um, and so in order to bring awareness and to um, basically, you know, compel the state and to, you know, fix the problems, he filed a suit with a law firm. Um and they cited two different laws. One is something that some people versed in accessibility might expect, which is the Unruh Civil Rights Act. That's something we hear thrown around quite a bit in the accessibility world. And this is a law specific to California that has a lot that imposes a lot of accessibility requirements. Um, Amber, correct me if I'm wrong. I believe it's both on public institutions, but also on like for-profit businesses and other organizations of certain sizes. Yeah, so the Unruh Civil Rights Act is an extension of the Americans with Disabilities Act. So the state of California has taken that federal law and they have made it more enforceable for um, a lot of different 
um, things, not just websites, but it does have. And most of the lawsuits that I've seen out of California, they always are against websites mm -hmm. uh, for accessibilities are under Unruh. But what's so, new about this one is that second yeah. law. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, se the second law is what's new. So this case also cites or files claims under the California False Claims Act because the agency that built this website for California Parks and Rec, I believe, um, claimed that all of the systems and everything in it were accessible. And that was part of the scope. That was part of their guarantee. Um, and Mr. Bashan discovered that that was not the case. And so that that is kind of the the impetus of the lawsuit, what laws were being used in the lawsuit and what ultimately happened um, after legal proceedings and everything else. I don't think that this went all the way to trial. I think it's settled. Um, but basically, as part of the settlement, the agency that built this agreed to pay two million dollars in damages uh, and. I don't know who those damages were awarded to. I didn't get that far in my reading, um, but they're paying $2 million in damages and they've had to promise to fix every single accessibility problem on this platform that they built, um, which is what they originally promised to do anyway, was have something accessible. So they're just being compelled to do what they said they were going to do in the first place. Um, so yeah, that's, so that's the nuts and bolts of this. This episode of Accessibility Craft is sponsored by Equalize Digital Accessibility Checker, the WordPress plugin that helps you find accessibility problems before you hit publish. A WordPress native tool, Accessibility Checker provides reports directly on the post edit screen. Reports are comprehensive enough for an accessibility professional or developer, but easy enough for a content creator to understand. Accessibility Checker is an ideal tool to audit existing WordPress websites, find accessibility problems during new builds, or monitor accessibility and remind content creators of accessibility best practices on an ongoing basis. Scans run on your server, so there are no per-page fees or external API connections. GDPR and privacy compliant, real-time accessibility scanning. Scan unlimited posts and pages with Accessibility Checker free. Upgrade to a paid version of Accessibility Checker to scan custom post types and password-protected sites. View site-wide open issue reports and more. Download Accessibility Checker free today at equalizedigital.com forward slash accessibility dash checker. Use coupon code ACCESSIBILITYCRAFT to save 10% on any paid plan. Here's the breakdown on the, the compensation and fees, which we can link to this PDF from the settlement that says it. So the, the actual settlement was $2,050,000. So the $50,000 was is going to be paid to an outside accessibility auditing company to audit the website. And they had to agree to pay, the developer had to agree to pay the $50,000 for auditing no later than 15 days after the settlement. And then from the $2 million, that is broken up a couple of different ways. So $250,000, um, was awarded under the False Claims Act. So a small percent of that was because of the False Claims Act. And of that, the state of California got um, 
35%, so $87,500 went to the state of California. Um, wait. Oh, sorry. That, sorry, the 35% went to Mr. Bashan, the, the gentleman who filed the claim, and the rest went to the state. But the state gave him a, oh, you pointed this out to us that we were defrauded, 35%. Finders fee, right? And then the $1,750,000, so the remaining, went to the gentleman who filed as his settlement for claims under the UNRU Civil Rights Act. Um, and of course, you know, his attorney's fees will come out of that. Uh, but so he walked away with more money than the state did in, in damages. Um, and then the, the web developer in addition to paying the $50,000 for the audit as part of the settlement, it says that they are agreeing within a, you know, I mean, this is a part that I think is not quite as great as I'd love if it would have been time bound to say when it would fix, but it says, you know, within a reasonable amount of time that they will fix everything that's found in the audit. Because it's hard to put a timeline on something when you don't know <laughs> what yeah, the problems yeah. are. So, but Steve, as a, as a, a person who builds things, yeah. What what was your initial gut reaction to this settlement? Um, well, I mean, my of the headline, like I read the headline, I was like, uh oh, right, like, but like once you once you read through it, you get a little more context. It, um, I mean, like I don't know, like it it's scary to some degree, but like like as a developer, right? Like, I mean, imagine. I mean, this is huge. We're talking big money here, right? $66 million for this project. Is that what it was? Or up to $66 million? Yeah, that was the, you're saying that was the value of the the, the project pro that the this project, agency yeah. did. Yeah. 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 I and think it was it like was. a six year project, right? And they paid like, I don't know, $10 million a year or something for the website to be built. Yeah. Yeah. So I, first I'm, of all, I'm like, how does this, it take six years? Is it really that hard? <laughs> well, I mean, we could get into I mean, we could get into a whole conversation on government waste, right? Like this highlights mm -hmm. Yeah. I think this highlights rot in the government. This highlights rot in agencies, right? Like it's 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 like when you start dealing with and you know, people get these contracts, right? And they they sit pretty for a long time and they they take their time to do, to do these projects. I don't know how big the website was. I haven't looked at it, right? But it's scary. Yeah, I, it, it's scary as a builder and, you know, as an owner of an agency, right? Like it's it's a little scary, but I think there's there is a lot of fault on both sides. Like I think it's weird. I actually would hold the state of California more liable too, right? Like I get for that accepting were... the website and continuing to pay yeah. for it without doing their own verification that it was actually accessible before right. it launched. I mean, if this is a government contract, I'm sure there's a team of people that are assigned to manage this government contract, right? And and they should have knowledge, a basic understanding of knowledge that they're getting what they're paying for, right? Yeah. And, and I saw somewhere, and this isn't to interrupt, but I think this lends itself to your point, and then I want you to continue, is uh, somewhere in the, in the commentary from the law firm that filed the suit, is that even the most basic validation of accessibility would have found that there were glaring issues. Right. So somebody at the yeah, state like there were wave issues, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somebody at the state of California would have pulled the website up and hit wave, 
installed wave in their browser and hit it, they would have noticed, right? Like that's what they're saying. Yeah. So it's, and I really think it highlights a lot of, of issues on both sides and, and, and some, so like you could be like, well, the blame should be like if the state of California really cared about accessibility, the, the people managing this contract would have taken basic steps to ensure they're getting what they paid for. Yeah, I mean, you. I, it's shocking to me that a website of this scope did not include user testing before launch. Right. So I'll give a shout out to um, Daniel Shusmith from Pinellas County, Florida. And they they use our accessibility checker plugin, but he did a lot of work when they rebuilt the county website um, and uh, on the accessibility front. But one of the things they did that I thought was good, um, NASA did this also, right, which is they had a public beta in a time period where the old website is still active, but then they have the new one at a beta and it's open to everyone and they're soliciting for feedback. And you know, and on the NASA website, we ran some user tests for them. Um, and I think like, it's surprising to me that this website in California, because if they had done any user testing, even with one person who was blind, they probably would have identified all this. And in a $66 million or however many millions well, of dollar project I mean, it is, it seems like there's budget for that. <laughs> I mean, we've, we've seen it from our end, right? We've seen the user testing happening, right? Like uh, the user testing, we can create the reports and we can hand them over to the third party agency, right? And then it's, it's on mm -hmm. that third party agency to actually remediate that, right? That's out of our hands. Yeah, yeah. To play devil's advocate too, like that, that very well could have happened. Um, so before we lay a significant portion of this at the feet of the state of California, like they might have, they might have done that testing. They might have raised issues. And then, I mean, it still may be partially their responsibility. They might've handed that list of issues to this agency. I'm speculating completely. I don't know if this yeah. happened. And then the agency could have been like, okay, it's fixed. Right. And not have actually fixed it. And then obviously maybe the state didn't go back and validate. Um, yeah. But I, I think to your original question, Amber, like if we could like bring this down to our level, like we're, WordPress world, smaller, small, like uh, solopreneurs and small agencies and stuff. I have seen like quite the uptick in like just in business cards that I'll get at the conferences, right? Where it's, it's, you know, like agent, you know, XYZ agency and it'll say like, you know, uh, web, web services. And then the, and then accessibility is like a top tier, like call out of their service. Right. And, and, and mm -hmm. you really like you really have to back that up. It's not just a selling point, right? It's not just something to 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 get a contract and the you know that oh we do accessibility. You really have to back it up and you really have to do it. So like I think where this agency got in a ton of trouble was they they made the claim and they they claimed that it was going to be accessible. Like it wasn't like they hired him to do the website. Nobody, it wasn't in the scope, right? And then the website was not accessible, right? It was in the scope. It was a requirement of the project. So, I mean, and they if failed to deliver. Yeah, yeah. If you're if you're claiming that you're providing accessible websites, you need to back that up. You need to really check, make sure. Yeah, mm -hmm. I just wrote, we can link them in the show notes, but I wrote a couple of articles for my accessibility weekly series on the admin bar 
One was about accessibility and contracts, which I think we should circle back to. And maybe um, we can share some of the ways we talk about like limiting scope on accessibility and contracts and, and things like that. Um, but we, we also, you know, I also wrote just about like introducing it and selling it. But a big thing that I said in all of these is you need to be honest. And yeah. I mean, I think this also probably applies for privacy. Any part when we're a vendor, if we're delivering anything that could have a legal implication, if you are not, like, it's one thing in the sales process, or it's easy for a salesperson to be like, yeah, we can do that. Yeah. But if you are not an expert at it, or you don't trust yourself on that front, then you should bring in someone who is, or you should tell your client, you know, like we we say this with privacy. We're like, I can tell you you need a privacy policy on your website. I cannot tell you what needs to be in it. Yeah. Here are your choices. You go write your own. You hire an attorney, which is probably the best bet. Or you go somewhere in between where you use one of those services that will generate one for you and you assume that it's good. But I'm not going to tell you which of those three choices is the best for your business because I can't provide you any advice on that. I just know you need one. Right. Yeah. And and I think accessibility could be the same way. If you're an agency or a freelance developer building websites, you know, in California, like that Unruh Civil Rights Act, that would have applied even if they hadn't lied. Right. And so maybe just saying, hey, I know you need this. I am not an accessibility expert. I can I will do my best, but I can't guarantee it. And if you need it guaranteed, we need to bring someone else in who can. I think that's probably the best way to have those conversations with clients. And you probably have these kind of conversations with agencies or you know what agencies are saying to their clients, Chris. Yeah, um, it's something that comes up quite often. And I think uh, it's it depend, it depend it's largely dependent on who the agency is talking to, right? What the outcome of that conversation is going to be. I, I generally think that the smaller the organization or the institution, the less perceived risk, the less perceived importance of accessibility. Um, and there are ways to skirt around that in a sales conversation and convince them to do it, right? Uh, particularly if they're in a state where there's laws that clearly apply. Um, but generally speaking, the agencies are still presenting this as like, a, you know, a, an add-on or a writer to the statement of work. Um, versus just a central part of their offering, just doing it the right way. Um, and I think that that's kind of the paradigm shift we need before we're going to see this kind of stuff kind of fall by the wayside. Um, if we want to see fewer <laughs> fewer lawsuits, fewer legal worries, et cetera, um, the, the tools themselves that the you know, super user type freelancers who are just stitching various components together to make finished products. Uh, they, those tools themselves need to be accessible. Um, yeah. And uh, for the more advanced use cases, um, there needs to be someone on the team championing it. And this is something like when this lawsuit first came to light that I was talking to Amber about. And I was like, I wonder because good Lord, like, can you imagine the compens the uh, the commission check on a sixty million dollar contract for that salesperson? Oh, like that the salesperson right? got, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, how much time and due diligence did that sale did that sales team? It's probably a sales team, right? Um, put into really talking to people at the agency about this requirement, and did they really understand what that requirement meant when they were doing the sales discovery? 
and and I, I don't think you know yeah. like i don't think that the that the sales like there's there's no one party like you were saying steve that bears all of the responsibility for this sure there were multiple points of failure that allowed this to happen with virtually every party involved like yeah. maybe the sales team failed to stress the importance of accessibility in their internal conversations as they were structuring this project with their technical teams then the technical teams didn't prioritize it as a result of those conversations. And even if it was brought up, it was dismissed. The client obviously wasn't doing their due diligence at multiple points. I'm assuming there were points for, for review, right? Well, I mean, or, just in the, just in the RFP selection, I mean, right. Yeah. Like, and it's like, and unless the agency just outright lied, right. I mean, I would, I would suspect that in the RFP, they would, would have had to provide, you know, their, how accessibility fits into their development workflow. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mm -hmm. would hope, I would hope like, unless the agency just outright lied. Yeah. Know? Or they just bolded and they said it will be accessible to WCAG 2.1 double yeah. A. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that was just a bullet <laughs> point, but they didn't really talk about how or why. I mean, what would be curious to know, like when we've done some big government, bigger government RFPs, they've actually done reference checks. Yeah. And and so what what would be interesting to know is whether or not in this particular instance, like did the state of California do their due diligence or did they just take for account? Like I, I'm I'm like looking at the name and the name of the agency is Conduit State and Local Solutions. And they were just like, oh, all they do is build government stuff for states all the time. So they know what they're doing. So they would be a good person for us to pick. <laughs> didn't, right? it, didn't it say it was split between two different agencies? Yeah, it had a subcontractor, US E-Direct. Oh. The subcontractor was who actually developed the website. So mm. yeah, I mean, multiple... It's, it's just interesting. No, I think so. so that's interesting too. So the per the people who bid bid it were not even the people who built it, like in yeah. terms of the, the team. And yeah, so now I we're mean, getting into the territory of did did you like on government RFPs, you generally have to list who your subcontractors are and be incredibly transparent of that, particularly if they're international. And I'm wondering if if um this agency has been kind of caught in the middle of being lied to by their subcontractor. Cause I'm going to be real without naming names. We've been straight up lied to by subcontractors. Yeah. Like about their abilities and about what they can deliver. Yeah. Yeah. But then we figuratively kill yeah. ourselves in order to deliver the right thing <laughs> and not the, the crummy well, thing that we got. That's because we have an Amber. <laughs> Maybe this other agency didn't have an Amber. Amber does not let things slide as we know yeah. when it comes to quality. <laughs> I'm, I'm quite particular. Hopefully it's yeah. not uh, too bad. You know, so I, I do think let's circle back for just a second. Cause you had mentioned, you know, like the importance in, in WordPress land, right. Of all the components and things. And so the article that I posted, the accessibility and contracts article on the admin bar has excerpts from our contract and our statement of work. Um, our terms of service, you can read, they're public on our website. And, and that includes a few things, two of which is, um, and all of these, by the way, I should say our contracts, we were written by real attorneys. Like we paid someone that wasn't, we didn't use a generator <laughs> to create them. Um, 
So one of the things that they told us was we have in our terms of service a statement that says not a law office that basically says we are not a law office. We're not attorneys. We don't practice law. We cannot guarantee compliance with any laws as a result because they said like that's a thing that's really big when you talk about ADA or Section 508 or whatever that might be. You need to be clear that your clients understand you're giving them your best understanding, but it is not legal advice. Um, and then we have a statement where we talk specifically about how um, it says company cannot guarantee um, that conforming with WCAG, so Web Content Accessibility Guidelines, equates compliance with the list out American ADA Section 508 or any other applicable law. Um, it just says that we use WCAG to uh, determine or measure success for accessibility, but it doesn't mean we're guaranteeing compliance with laws. And I think that's probably really important to think about if you're starting to get into accessibility. And then maybe, Chris, you could talk a little bit about how like we limit it in our statement of work. Because we're never telling people, your website will be 100% accessible. Right? I mean, that offer's on the table, but they would need to have very deep pockets. Um, and a $66 million. Dollars. I would do that million. for $66 million. <laughs> yeah. So, and the reason I say that is, if you're guaranteeing well, 100% accessible website, every single component, every single page, every single piece of content, you better be sure that you and your team have 100% control of every piece of content, every page, every component. Otherwise, you have no business guaranteeing the accessibility of those things. And the reason for that is, and we can, you know, any of us who have been in the WordPress space for a while can imagine these situations, right? Um, if you're bulk importing uh, someone's blog, uh, for instance, you don't know if they have a bunch of images in there that don't have alternative text or headings out of oh, order wait, inside yes, their do. individual blog posts. Uh, well, wait, yes, wait, if yes, you're you using do. accessibility checker. <laughs> well, I mean, we've uh, even talked about making uh, adding a feature to the accessibility checker that doesn't allow you to publish inaccessible pages. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, if you're import, I mean, I don't know if that would apply. If you're like, when you build a website, you import in their old content, right? Or like, spreadsheets of filled with like hundreds of products to a WooCommerce site or something like that. So I think, you know, I mean, you could set a, you could set a date where it doesn't restrict publishing for any post or page that was modified before a certain date. Potentially. Well, I mean, I, I guess if you uh, import it in, it doesn't actually, the publish action doesn't run. So it probably could bypass something like that. I think, you know, so I do think like to just maybe clarify a little bit, I, there is ways like with our accessibility checker plugin to find a lot of problems, even on posts that you haven't looked at, but that doesn't mean they're being fixed. Um, yeah. And so, but you were asking about how yeah. we limit our contracts. So I do want to go yeah. back to that. Um, basically uh, what we, what we say is we will guarantee the accessibility of anything where we have direct control is the is the simplest way that I can put it. So for a typical website project for us, what that means is anything that we have designed, built, assembled, or otherwise coded ourselves will be part of the accessibility guarantee for that project. The only exception would be is if the customer forces us to make a deliberately inaccessible decision about a component that's under our control, at which point we're having them sign a, a waiver or provide written authorization saying, yes, I understand this won't 
be accessible anymore because I've made this decision. And then we screenshot that and we keep it on file um, in case anything comes up in the future. But that's how we, that's how we limit it. So you just have to know what you can and what you can't control um, and, yeah. and limit accordingly. And list it, literally list it out in your statement of work. Like ours literally says header, footer, and sidebars, web forms we have built, web pages that we've assembled manually, right? So like a page we've built in the block editor where we put all the content in mm -hmm. um, and front end elements controlled solely by the templates or the theme and not content areas, it says. So. Mm -hmm. And those guarantees are, are void for any 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 time like if some if something if some if an update runs and changes any code like that that directly controls that element that we have a guarantee related to it immediately voids it um so mm -hmm. that way if you're like because we guarantee the forms right that we've assembled but if but basically what that lets us sidestep is if gravity forms which bless them they're amazing when it comes to accessibility i don't think they would ever allow something through but if they released a breaking change in terms of accessibility in a future update we would have our out of like, well, this other company controls that code. We can't be held responsible. You have to talk mm -hmm. to them. Well, it's 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 always time-based. Everything is, right? Like even when we do mm -hmm. audits for people and we give them a letter of conformance, it's not like this thing is accessible. It's on this date and time, these pages and or components, and we list them out, Yeah, you know, complied with WCAG and, and was accessible, right? But I can't tell you what's going to happen even three days later when some content creator comes in and does a whole bunch of things on a website. So everything yeah. always has to be date-based. So in the context of, of this project, it obviously wasn't on day one, right? Like, mm -hmm. Yeah. It launched just... not accessible. Yeah. yeah. So, so I think... Go ahead. So I, I just want to like talk about kind of, you know, winners and losers when it comes to money in this project. So like, I get that the settlement's huge, right? Like $2 million settlement. And you gave a little bit of the breakdown of that money. I got a feeling that a lion's share of that's going to go to lawyers, which doesn't make me super happy, but <laughs> I would like the lion's share yeah. to go to the uh, person that was not able to use the site. But um, you're well, doing you know, it. That's interesting. Do you, so I thought about this when I read the settlement the vast majority of it went to the person and his attorneys, right? Yeah. Way more than actually went to the state of California, who, if you think about it, like they were the people who were lied to. <laughs> I know. And I like, I found that interesting. Yeah. I really don't think this, I actually would hold the state accountable. Like, I don't know. Oh, maybe so that, you think maybe the state should have even paid well, something? Yeah. I mean, how did, I mean, you put out RFP. Their negligence. You put out RFP. It's your job to vet these agencies, right? Like, like in like mm -hmm. Chris said, the most basic check would have found that this is not accessible. So it's like, is the government not required to like be responsible for any decision they make? Come on, like, Steve. And you yeah, know the answer to that. Question. Yeah, I know the answer to that. And and <laughs> when I talk about like winners and losers, we're talking about the big losers, the taxpayer here, right? Sixty-six million dollars is gone, and you're gonna penalize the you penalize the 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 agency involved two million dollars so they have to pull two million dollars out of their 66 million dollar money pile like yeah right and then yeah and then the person that <laughs> and the person and the people that couldn't use the website get a, a you know 
you know, a portion of what was that hundred one point two million? Yeah, or something. like a, a portion of the that hundred and seventy one million seven hundred fifty dollars. Yeah, that, that they have to split with their lawyer, right? So we don't really know what that breakdown is. <clears throat> well, in the agency world too, this was probably an an E and O claim on somebody's insurance policy. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Realistically, like that two million dollars, I bet you the agency didn't even feel it. Now maybe their liability, their, their insurance well, yeah, their, will go their up. insurance bill is going to go up. I bet. Yeah. And yeah. and um, the taxpayers are out all that money, and the website is still not accessible. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, no, and I will say, as someone who goes camping. Like, so when I was reading some of the problems that it said, and like, I, I have totally been there the way these work in, at least like when we lived in Colorado, they would have all, a lot of the campsites, they're all closed in the winter, right. Or like certain times. And then at certain points of the year, it would be like, okay, we're, they're releasing campsites. And this is what I read, like happens with California too. And you go there and it's like first come first serve to be able yeah. to reserve it. And so basically some people, at least in Colorado, like, and even we did this before, like we would sit there like right before 8am on the day when they were releasing them so that we could try to find the campsite we want and reserve it. Otherwise you literally couldn't go camping. Yeah. Like right? a year, and, like a year in advance. Yeah. 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 And yeah. And like, it really does put people with disabilities at a disadvantage. And like, that sucks if you want to be able to go camping and it, you know, it, you can't even use the website and reserve it. And it's not just like, oh, well, you can just call on the phone. Well, by the time you figure out where that number is, if it's even public and it's a, you know, a state, I mean, maybe the state doesn't even have that, but it's probably not enough people for the call volume there would be. You sit on there and then they'd be like, oh, sorry, that campground's all filled up. Yeah. I would have been more happy if it was like, a hundred thousand dollars every day that the website's not accessible, you know, like, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, so that's what the, the fine in Ontario is a daily fine. Yeah. And maybe that is, a. I mean, that certainly would motivate everyone to move a lot faster on fixing problems. Right. I mean, I think it's still like, it's, it's, it's still, there's, it's not viewed the same, right? Like, it's like, uh, like, <clears throat> If the only way for people to get insulin was to go into this building that is 10 feet off the ground, right? And they don't put a ramp on the building to get in there, right? Mm -hmm. Now, that is completely tangible, right? We can touch it. We can see it, right? They would obviously be in big trouble, you know, if people in wheel wheelchairs could not get up there to get their insulin, right? Like, that would be, like, fix it right now. But when yeah, it comes there to would the, be a there would be a wooden ramp the next day. Yeah. Yeah. And uh yeah. or the place would be completely shut down, you know, like mm -hmm. and uh and you're thinking like the problem with websites is that we have a hard time visualizing the the pain or the suffering or the challenges that websites present to people and we just don't take it seriously enough. Right. And you've got you've got all this wealth being transferred around between the government and these agencies and neither of them are hurting right and i mean ultimately they clearly no one there really cared deeply about it right and and unfortunately i feel like even with the lawsuit it doesn't like fully now i mean they're supposed to fix it right if it you know i don't know what the timetable was did we read that 
did they know it just yeah Re- in a reasonable yeah, reasonable time yeah yeah it sounds like a uh, legal speak right <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah so i will say so laney feingold who is a top disability rights attorney in the united states she had a piece on her blog um, and she did think that it was a crucial, she said, it's a crucial settlement for everyone involved in procuring technology, websites, mobile apps, and more in the United States public sector. Um, and and she says she was glad to see that the fix was part of the settlement and the agreement. Um, and I think she thinks this step was a good, this case was a good step in the right direction i mean this is probably one of the biggest settlements based on what i read on her website and some other websites that there has ever been like a lot of times the unruh stuff it's like ten thousand (laughs) dollars right um so having a big settlement but also um she was talking about how the you know this is also one of the first times it's ever been made with a false claims or a fraud thing. And so that then sets precedent. I think that a lot of other, um, and it doesn't have to be users too. I think any sort of website owner, if they get something delivered and then they find out via a complaint from their users that it's not accessible, they might be able to, if they go back to the agency and the agency's like, yeah, we're not fixing that. Yeah. They might also be able to file a fraud lawsuit. So I think, you know, it is interesting, like, I, I think you're right. Like it's, it always feels like it's not enough, but I do think like there's steps. Right. And, and it made me sort of optimistic to see what she had to say about it. Cause she, you know, and that she thinks it's a good step yeah. in the right direction. Yeah. I, I think that goes back to like what we were talking about, you know, like don't use accessibility as another marketing term to sell your website services. Cause Take it from, I mean, take it from us, like making a website accessible adds a lot of time. It really does. Mm-hmm. Like, especially, I mean, once you get good developers that learn how to code things accessible, accessibly, it gets better. But like, if you're bringing a new developer in each time, or if you're, if you're outsourcing each time, you have to spend a lot of time just explaining to them how to make things accessible. So it's not just a it's not just a term to throw up on your website to sell websites. Like you need to back it up and you need to actually make it make it accessible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think a, a closing piece of advice for me is to get a lot of clarity in your sales conversations about accessibility and where the customer sits on it. Talk about geographic nexus, talk about where they're doing business. If they're in California, if they're in Ontario, if they're in New York, or if they're in the EU, they need to understand that there might be laws to apply that apply to them, and they should talk to some legal professionals. Um, and you should try to structure the project around managing that risk area, right? Because it it has been firmly established now, particularly like if you are an agency, a salesperson at an agency or even a a high-end like freelancer and you're selling to government or to public sector and you you should be paying attention to this lawsuit Mm -hmm. it is you should be concerned you should be reevaluating your processes if you're not highly confident that you're delivering accessible outcomes to these organizations um that's my closing piece of advice yeah i think the other thing just worth um for 
people who are listening or now watching us on YouTube that uh, uh, are either they are someone with disabilities or they're an insider on an agency and they know that there is fraud. Um, the legal firm that did the case, and we'll have all the links in the show notes, they put out another thing. They're basically looking for more. They want to do more of these cases. I mean, obviously, why would they not? <laughs> yeah. But um, but they said fraud cases such as this one have the potential to result in jury verdicts of tens of millions of dollars in damages. And they are, you know, if you're interested in being a whistleblower, they are looking for whistleblowers. And so maybe that's something to consider if you have tried working really hard from the inside and it's not, you're not seeing the change that needs to happen. Um, it might be worth coming forward, you know, or, or just showing that statement, right. <laughs> to the people yeah. who work for and be like, look, not that I'm saying I'm going to do this. However, you should be aware of this case and, and maybe that will help motivate some change in your organization. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, it is a very interesting case and we don't always get to talk about law and, and that kind of stuff. Of course, none <laughs> of us are attorneys, but I, I think it has really interesting implications for all of our businesses. So I'm glad you two were willing to chat about it with me. And it yep. is a new year. So we have a sparkling rosé that we think <laughs> is mostly, <laughs> mostly worth trying. Maybe not our favorite, but but interesting. Oh yeah, here Steve's got the bottle up. There's your thumb now. I feel like you could use this to to clean pennies. Like, uh, I don't think it's that bad. I would I would recommend to our listeners to uh, try it, maybe, or, or don't. Yeah, sorry, Shirley. I'm I'm not a not a giant giant fan, but that's you know maybe there's maybe some of their other stuff is good. Yeah, yeah. All right. We'll see y'all later. Thank you so much for being here. Bye. And we all gonna we're all gonna smile and wave now because this is gonna be a video on the internet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right, bye. Thanks for listening to Accessibility Craft. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe in your podcast app to get notified when future episodes release. You can find Accessibility Craft on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. And if building accessibility awareness is important to you, please consider rating Accessibility Craft five stars on Apple Podcasts. Accessibility Craft is produced by Equalize Digital and hosted by Amber Hines, Chris Hines, and Steve Jones. Steve Jones composed our theme music. Learn how we help make thousands of WordPress websites more accessible at equalizedigital.com.